This is The Book Show here on RTE Radio 1 and tonight, Julie Bunton's haunting tale of teenage friendship and one of Los Angeles' most famous novels, Ask the Dust. Also, I'll remind you of our competition to write a letter to a character of a novel. But first, David Hayden is a Dublin-born writer who has just published his first collection of short stories called Darker with the Lights On. The stories are full of rich and sometimes absurd imagery that often defy interpretation. The tears of miners underground are used to irrigate vegetables. A giant squirrel teaches creative writing to children and one story is a meditation on play. And I'm delighted to be joined in studio now by David Hayden. David, in this book, we encounter a a mine of miners' tears um, and library that loans apples, a floating man. uh, And we're clearly in a very unfamiliar sort of universe. So whereabouts are we with these stories? I usually start from a point of something very ordinary. So some of the stories are about work. Some of the stories are about family. Some of the stories are about violence or a violent incident. And then I just go into them as deeply as I can and try and find the feeling um, that can be made into a story because the stories are as much made from feelings as they are from words. Is there that strangeness, that sense of something not being quite right is there through all the stories? Is that a necessary feeling for you for your writing to work? Something being off? It is for these stories. The stories all start from the premise of strangeness being ordinary, that it's part of ordinary life um, that's the strange. And I know that from the times when I take notes of unusual things that I see, and I think I can't put that in a story that's too strange, but that's something that's uh, that's real. Uh, you have to balance credibility against uh, being able to tell a story sometimes. What was the strangest thing that you noted or took note of in real life that made it into this collection? Probably not the strangest, but one of the stories, Egress, came from a near brush with being made redundant. And once you get to middle life, you you get to know quite a lot of people who have had that experience. And a couple of years after I wrote the story, I was actually made redundant. So I did have the real experience. But I started from that very ordinary point of being you know, almost literally thrown out the window and engaged with that as if it were almost a fairy tale of the experience of of loss and actually hope because the the story ends in a hopeful way. Well, to get a sense of that story, would you maybe read the opening to Egress for us? Many years have passed since I stepped off the ledge. I cleared my desk and all that I wanted to keep was saved on a memory stick placed in my top pocket. Everything else I deleted. I found a window that I could cut and cut again to make an opening through which I could step out onto a narrow ledge. As I moved from there into the air, I felt relief, a loss of weight. I began to observe the office building as if for the first time. The honey-coloured glittering skin of stone, the terracotta panels, smooth and grooved, the sheets of clean glass. My eye and mind moved with delight from the detail to the great mass of the building and back again. I felt joy to be outside forever. David, there are 20 stories in this collection and some have obviously been published before in a couple of journals. So how did you shape the collection for the book? I had an idea that the stories would all be similar thematically, that they would they would certainly deal with unnamed places that came out of lots of experiences of being in different places, because I've moved around a lot and lived in many different places. And what I wanted to do was to have 
that sense of place that you might know, but you don't know the name of, something that you might have experienced or that's on the edge of experience. And I suppose I'm also drawing on a sense that comes from folktale and and there is that element there as well of, of, of all kinds. I mean, uh, Irish and German and Russian and all of those kind of folk tales which I'm interested in. The, the unreality of it is meant to be very real when you get into it. So there's family drama in there and there's stories of, of work and ordinary life, but they are hopefully transformed into something that has got great depth and, and resonance. That's the aim. You also play around with length quite a lot and some of the stories are a page and a half. Some of them are obviously more standard length. How do you know where the finish line is with the story or ending something you struggle with? I heard Ali Smith once say that the story tells you how long it should be and I've got a lot of time for that. I think when you come to write each story, there's an idea that there is a short story form and you can learn from the masters of that form and you write in those ways, and there's a, there's a particular kind of structure and register that you can write in. But I actually think that you have to find the means for each story um, when you're writing it, and looking back to how Chekhov did it, or Flannery O'Connor did it, or Frank O'Connor did it, is not going to help you. What I've also found is that writing 40 or 60 stories, or however many I've written now, doesn't help me with writing the next story. Each story, I have to find the means within it. And that also um, means the kind of length that it can be. So I've written the shortest thing that I've written was probably about 20 words. And the longest story that I've written is something like 8,000 words. And each was sort of necessary to be that length in order to tell the story that I wanted to tell. Well, the title of the collection takes its name from a line in the story called Lights. And David, perhaps you'd read that for us now, in full. Down here, in the lower room, May and I sweat to urge a crate from the ground and out the door. This great raw wood box could not be heavier if it contained all our worries. The crate does not contain all our worries. I am big, but I am weak. Long life has taken my strength and left me with joy and ends and the knowledge that wherever I am standing, I am standing slightly to the side of wherever I am standing. May gives a short eucalyptus cough. Michael, she says, hunker down. I get to my knees again and lean my shoulder to the planks. My flesh compresses like soft cheese wrapped in muslin and as I anticipated, the crate does not move. May walks to the wall, crouches, coiled and tight against the wainscoting, and springs forward, her great, curly, sunny head preceding her. She hits the crate centrally, with main force. There's a thumping crunch that trembles the world so completely that my teeth fall out. I bend slowly, pick up the gnashes, blow the dust from the gums and plastic enamel and slot them back into my mouth. You moved the room, but the crate stayed still. I can see that, you old fool. What do we do next? May grunts and gestures vaguely to the room, whereupon I lean forward to stirrup her, but she leaps over me and lands on the crate. I straighten and look to see her arm 
extended towards me from above. May tugs hard, and I arc through the air and land on my back. The pain is all I could have expected. May kicks me with her soft pink slippers as I roll and scramble about. She stops when I am seated, hugging my knees. You can't possibly be hurt. May is right. I say, would you? And I rise, and we dance, together not apart, the moves that were old when our parents were young. She is soft and lithe, and her neck and hair smell of cinnamon and honey. We stop and step back from one another. May holds me under my arms and swings us into the air. Panels of the crate fall away, raising some little dust. And there is our saggy old sofa. And there are our children, as they were in the long ago late evening. Immaculate, content, watching cartoons in grey and white, a bowl of popcorn between them. We are standing in the doorway, and I reach for the switch, and May puts her hand on mine, gentle, warm, and says, It's darker with the lights on. And thanks to David Hayden. Darker with the Lights On is published by Little Island Press. Now, the deadline for our Dear Character competition was earlier this week and we got a huge response to it. We received so many letters to characters from novels and we'll be reading through them and making up a shortlist of some of our favourites. As you know, we're recording a special episode of The Book Show on Saturday, October 21st in Smock Alley Theatre in Dublin. The Laureate for Irish Fiction, Anne Enright, will judge from our shortlist and the winning letter will receive a €250 book token, while a selection of the letters will be read on stage at the event. Joining Anne, we'll have writers Donal Ryan, Lisa McInerney and Paul Howard, the creator of one of Ireland's favourite characters, Ross O'Carroll Kelly. So book your place at smockalley.com. Now, Ask the Dust is a novel from 1939, written by John Fonte and is one of Los Angeles' most celebrated books. It's set in the squalor and poverty of the Bunker Hill district and tells the story of a young writer who's struggling to get published. After some initial success, the book went out of print for over 40 years until it was discovered in the Los Angeles Public Library by the writer Charles Bukowski. To find out more about this, Regan Hutchins went to what is now called John Fonte Square and sitting under the shadow of that square's landmark library, he met with Jim Fonte to hear about his father's great work, Ask the Dust, and how it could vanish from our bookshelves. This is the library that he frequented and this is the library where Charles Bukowski discovered John Fonte and due to that discovery, rejuvenated John Fonte's legend in his career. I mean, Bukowski talks about it quite explicitly as a moment where he, he was rifling around the shelves and, and pulled out this book and just knew instantly, knew in a heartbeat, that this book was going to change his life. Yeah, it's, uh, it has that effect on people. I can't tell you how many times in my life somebody has just walked up to me, you know, knowing 
who my father was and, and having read Ask the Dust for the first time, and it really floors people. One night, I was sitting on the bed in my hotel room on Bunker Hill, down in the very middle of Los Angeles. It was an important night in my life because I had to make a decision about the hotel. Either I paid up or I got out. That was what the note said, the note the landlady had put under the door. A great problem deserving acute attention. I solved it by turning out the lights and going to bed. As the Dusk was written when John Fante was barely 30 years old, it tells the story of struggling writer Arturo Bandini, who lives in Bunker Hill at the height of the Depression. Today, it's all glass and high-rise, but in John Fante's day, it was an area ripe for a young writer. It wasn't a well-to-do area. It was kind of a fringe area. Um, a lot of struggling young people lived in apartments, writers and such, uh, little coffee shops, liquor stores, uh, milkman in the morning. Trying to impress people with his unpublished short story, The Little Dog Laughed, Arturo Bandini also impresses the reader with his description of cafes, diners, seedy hotels and bedsits, and the often comic portrait of the young artist. I don't think it's a great secret, but Arturo Bandini and John Fonte are uh, pretty synonymous. Uh, Ask the Dust is uh, uh, very much autobiographical. Dad was a really, really nice guy. He could be astoundingly charming and astoundingly rude and pugnacious. Um, very volatile, very Italian. Wide mood swings. I was 20 then. What the hell, I used to say. Take your time, Bandini. You've got 10 years to write a book, so take it easy, get out, and learn about life. Walk the streets. That's your trouble, your ignorance of life. So how was it that a book which made John Fante famous and is one of Los Angeles' defining books found itself out of print for over 40 years? Well, we can blame Adolf Hitler. This is... <laughs> uh, life can be so complicated. It was very, very well received, but it was published by a company called Stackpole & Sons, which had also published... Mein Kampf, and they were sued and run out of business, and it went out of print. He wasn't bitter with that, 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 you know, Hitler had knocked him off the bestseller list? He was bitter. He was bitter about that and uh, any number of other things that, <laughs> that went on. He, was, um, he wasn't a vain man by any stretch, but he was very confident that he was given a gift to write and that he did it well. It, it came so naturally for him, it, the words just flowed from his heart. And he was the son of a peasant Italian family that were basically illiterate. But he was just given this gift. I can't explain it, he couldn't explain it. But if he put his pen to paper, beauty came out. It just happened. Los Angeles, give me some of you. Los Angeles, come to me the way I came to you. My feet over your streets. 
You pretty town, I loved you so much, you sad flower in the sand. You pretty town. And thanks there to our reader, Rory Keneally. Ask the Dust is published by Canagate. Julie Bunton's debut Marlena transports us to a dirt poor and dusty corner of Michigan and the story of two girls, Kat, the narrator, and the Marlena of the title, whose all-consuming friendship spirals into an inevitably tragic conclusion. The novel unravels how the events of an urgent and beautiful year can haunt an entire life. Here's the writer, Julie Bunton, who introduces us to Marlena from Kat's perspective with the short reading. Marlena lifted her hair off her neck and twisted it into a damp rope. Pounds of hair, waist-length and alien pale, bangs angled across her forehead, a style I'd tried at the end of middle school with crap results. She was alarmingly pretty, sly feline face all cheekbone and blink, and if I am honest, that was the first reason I wanted to become friends. At 15, I was somehow fat and skinny at the same time. My ears stuck straight out of my head. Still, I believed that at any second I might become beautiful. I was crazy about girls who already were. I'm Marlena, she said. Cat, I answered. To my family, I was Catherine or Kathy, but I decided I wouldn't be that girl here. Well, we don't seem to have much choice. She smiled, her eyes blue and giant. I couldn't tell if it was nice or what. Whenever I hear the word danger, I see Marlena and me staring into the mouth of that U-Haul, in the winter hour between twilight and dark. Two girls full of plans, 15 and 17 years old in the middle of nowhere. Stop, I want to tell us. Stay right where you are, together. Don't move. But we will. We always do. The clock's already running. And that was Julie Bunton reading there from Marlena. The book opens with a very spectacular event, um, but we also find out that Marlena dies in the first few pages, but not in a spectacular way. She drowns in just a few inches of water. But the novel is also about the impact of the friendship that it has on the narrator. So we've got Kat, who's a 15-year-old girl, and she's infatuated with the titular Marlena, who's 17. So who are these girls? Marlena is really, I mean, ultimately, she's kind of a filtered through Kat's mind and the book is written in first person so we get only Kat's voice really and that's where the book started for me it came with Kat's voice the kind of both the adolescent voice and then the fact that in her 30s she's looking back so we have all kind of the psychic matter of the years between that moment and when she's an adult and how your past kind of reverberates through time and affects you in ways that you don't quite know until you really look at it Um, but Marlena for Kat she's always like one step ahead and Kat just wants to see her and like pin her down and see exactly what it is she lost and who she was, but she kind of never can, the way that we kind of always can't quite see our friends for who they really are or our loved ones because people are mysterious. Um, So I was interested in that dynamic of kind of wanting to possess someone, that intimacy, wanting to get as close as possible as girls. I mean, I think that's an important part of teenage friendship. But I, I also was interested in the fact that girls tell each other stories about who they can be and what kind of person they can be. So on the surface, it seems like Marlene is the wild one. She's the one who's always pushing, taking risks, doing drugs, um, doing scary things. And Kat's captivated by that. And, and it's fun kind of to be part of that. And Kat's shy or more reserved. But actually, I wanted to trace how they tell each other those things about themselves. But really, neither of them are quite those roles. Marlene is actually in a desperate situation. She's not really brave. She's an addict. And Kat is kind of morally confused she doesn't know 
what to be. She just is a follower to such an extreme extent that she almost has no personality. So much of that intensity of female friendships comes to the fore in the book. And there's a line, for so many women, the process of becoming requires two. It's not hard to make out the marks the other person left. And in Marlena, I think Kat wonders whether she invented Marlena. And I suppose the novel delves into identity and how much the people we meet in her earlier help forge those identities. You get to be a certain way with your friends that you maybe can't be in life. Like, friendship between girls is creative. Um, You say, this is what I want to be. You tell the story of yourself to your friend and they confirm or reject it for you. And that is something that I think shapes who women actually grow into. Um, When you talk to women, like adult women, about their teenage best friends, I've heard they they don't forget the things that were said to them. Like, even... My high school best friend told me once that I never knew if I was confident or humiliated. I've never forgotten that my entire life. It's like something about that feels like essential to me. And I don't know if it's essential to me because she captured something about myself or because I remembered it. And I took it as something that was true because I trusted her and loved her so much and thought she knew me better than anyone else. So the novel is obviously focusing on those very specific friendships we we all have in our teenagers where you just want to be around one person and it's quite claustrophobic. It also has its origins in, in a, a real life friendship of yours that you had with a girl who died. How much of the intensity of that friendship made its way into the pages of this book? I wouldn't have written this book if I hadn't lost a friend. I lost a friend in my early 20s of two complications related to substance abuse and and my sister also struggles with some of the things that Marlene is struggling with in this book. And we have a lot of language for losing a partner, losing a family member. We don't have a lot of language for losing a friend, especially a friend from adolescence that you maybe have grown apart from. Or like, what is that relationship and how does it fit into like the accepted scheme of relationships that we can care deeply about? But at the same time, Marlene is so different. And Kat, too, has some things in common with me, but it's so different for me ultimately that it was like my contract with the book was not about telling the truth of my experience. It was about telling the truth of Kat and Marlena. Like it, it took on a, a new life. Um, so I always feel like it's a tricky thing to articulate because on the one hand, certainly it has some basis in experiences I had. But on the other hand, I made so much up, <laughs> you know, it feels unfair to my friend. Julie, the book obviously focuses a lot on the teenagers, but it does shift forward to Kat. We meet her later in life. She's living in New York in her 30s and she's starting to fully understand the impact that this friendship actually had on her and the emotional scars that it has left. So you drop breadcrumbs all the way through the book. But how did you figure out at what point to tell this story from in Kat's life? I was never interested in writing this story from Kat's perspective as a 15 year old girl, because as a writer, like, I love teenagers. I'm fascinated by adolescence. I love the moments of like writing about first and the intensity of being a teenager. But I don't want to be limited to the vocabulary of a teenager when I'm talking about emotions and especially grief because it's not you don't understand things. You can be very smart, but you can't. You're sort of not wise yet. And I didn't want to be limited in that way. So I always knew that this book always came to me with Kat's voice, and she was always an adult. Um, she always had that kind of insight. And also, just to be like a little bit technical. Like in writing a story about really thinking about grief and what it means and how you can't kind of escape it, I knew that I wanted to make certain choices about from where Kat was looking at the story. Like if it was unfolding in time from her being 15, then we would find out maybe towards the end of the book that Marlena died. We'd find out in the real time of the story. That's a story about a girl who dies and how that girl dies, which this book is about to a certain extent. But it's not a story about grief, which is the thing that's on you all the time. It's the thing you can't get away from. Um, And I needed to have Kat's adult voice kind of living with this loss right from the first line in order to capture that. Or that's what I thought, at least. 
There have been a number of books, I think, over the last few years which pick apart the intensity of female friendships from Elena Ferrante's quartet of books charting the lives of two Italian women, Emma Klein's The Girls, um, I thought of Rachel B. Glazer's Pauline and Fran. Were there particular coming-of-age stories about women that influenced you or that you had in your mind? Yeah, um, it's funny, just to kind of side answer your question, when I first came, the book first came out, I remember a lot of people were like, so many books about teenage friendships, like another one. And I remember thinking like, this is so weird. It's not like we say like so many books about marriages that go wrong or like so many books about, I don't know, like murders, like thrillers about police procedurals. We don't say those things. We just, there's an idea that there can only be like a certain amount of female friendship stories. Like we've gotten that story, it's done. But actually like each one of those relationships is so specific. I and I love reading about them. I think it's like, I want to hear everyone's teenage, like, best friend story. I think we should have just, like, a ton of them. But to answer your question more directly, Who Will Run the Frog Hospital by Laurie Moore is one of my favorite books. And I remember reading it when I was 16 years old and thinking, actually feeling like I could be a writer. Um, it's sort of corny to say this, but it was a book about girls doing silly things. Like, there's sections in that book where they're making up songs. Nothing really happens. There is something that happens. I won't give it away, but it's not um, a really dramatic book. It's very quiet, and it's like a song almost. It's just really elegiac and, and beautiful and perfect. And I thought, like, oh, if this is what books can be about, I could do this. It really gave me permission, I felt. Um, and I hadn't read anything like that at that time. And in some small way, I think this book is a little bit of an homage to that. I, I looked at the structure of Laurie Moore's book a lot, I, how she moved back and forth between the adult woman who's kind of looking for the vivid core of her life and finds it in this adolescent friendship. It was a really important book for me. And thanks there to Julie Bunton. Her novel, Marlena, is published by Picador. And if that sounds like your kind of thing, I'd highly recommend Laurie Moore's Who Will Run the Frog Hospital, which is a book I keep on buying for people. That's it for tonight. Remember, you can follow us at Bookshow RTE on Twitter. There's no Bookshow next week, but we're back here on RTE Radio 1 on October 28th with our hour-long episode recorded at Smock Alley Theatre. My thanks to producer Regan Hutchins and to series producer Zoe Cummins. Bookshow.